things that we invest will impact the kind of future that we will be living in. Welcome back to the Cocoon Podcast. On this episode, we will talk with Theodore, co-founder of Cocoon and managing partner of Cocoon Ignite Ventures. We'll hear about how he started as an entrepreneur and his latest venture. Go way back and and Theodore, talk a bit about your early sort of experiences in college. Theodore, do you want to start it off by talking about your internship? I've actually worked at my family business for, let me count, I think for six summers, starting in 1996, 97. So I started off as the, one of our youngest secret customers, a 16-year-old going to a jewelry shop trying to buy a gift for my mother. And uh, I, was, I was the company's secret customer because back then uh, I was young. Uh, the majority of my, uh, my company staff had no idea who I was. So I was a pretty good secret customer. And, and of course, I mean, the fact that I'm a kid uh, it's, I'm, I'm so, I, I'm, I'm perceived as very, uh, harmless. So we were checking whether our frontline staff would engage, uh, window shoppers within 30 seconds, uh, of the window shopper approaching the displays of the shop. And, uh, yeah, and actually I think a good three quarters of our shops staff took me seriously. I mean, it was kind of weird to have a kid like window shopping, but nevertheless, they followed, followed up on the, on the protocol and actually engaged me. Uh, and the one who really got me to like, uh, really think about buying something and almost, uh, did not le let me leave the shop. Uh, was a staff called uh, Pecky, P-E-K-K-Y. Uh, she was so good that at the end of the day, I actually went back to the shop to buy, buy the piece of jewelry that I was looking for. And it was at a company uh, annual dinner. The following, I think it was like in two months time, like the, uh, I, I did this in July and then the company and your dinner was in September. Uh, I gave her that piece of jewelry as a prize. And Pecky was so good that after 22 years, she's still at our uh, jewelry company. Uh, and of course, I mean, she she she's one of the top sales uh, um, in, in the jewelry chain, and she she's currently shop manager for for one of our shops. Um, a top performing wait, shop. Wait, so how many how many shops did you go to, and how many people did you talk to? What 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 does it mean for a salesperson to come up to you within thirty seconds? What what do they say? Um, now my memory is a little spotty on this, but essentially back then, uh, we wanted. I remember my instruction is that we wanted to see. Uh, that our, the frontline staff would engage customers who are uh, window shoppers. 
and talk to them. Try to see if there's anything they can do to help, because jewelry is not something that it's easy to buy, and there's always a purpose. So it's important to chat with customers. So I think back then,、uh, this this protocol was、uh, very important because we need to create demand. We need to understand the customers' needs before. We can sell them anything. There's over a thousand pieces of jewelry in the shop. Like what a something from like I guess a thousand Hong Kong dollars all the way to like twenty thousand dollars on twenty thousand dollars, and it's important for the frontline staff to、uh, build a rapport very quickly and to start a casual conversation. So I think that's that was why why. It was so important to engage with the shoppers. So you said you interned like six summers. Did you spend all six summers being secret customer?、Uh, I did all kinds of things.、Uh, I, I mean, obviously my covers blown after the first summer as being a secret customer. So the second summer I, I was I was at Teddy Sells.、Uh, we started a Teddy Sells division, and I don't know. I actually do not recall talking to customers over the phone. Um, and subsequently, I was working on、uh, some form of like e-commerce because、uh, I started selling jewelry on eBay, and that kind of worked out pretty well. And during summertime,、um, I'll, I'll be back in Hong Kong, and I'll, I'll be working with the wholesale team trying to figure out how to sell more. And、um, I have to say, what the secret customer. Experience was one of the best because I got to travel、uh, across Hong Kong, everywhere. I mean, with uh, uh, via public transport, I, I learned to. I mean, I of course I know how to take the subway, but I didn't have. I did back then. I didn't have a reason to take a subway all the way to Shanghai, all the way to like Fanling or any 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 like other parts of Hong Kong. But being a secret customer, I needed to. Go to these places,、um, and there are places where there are, there are no subway. So I actually need to ask around. But, oh, me back then we didn't have the internet to check the bus routes, so there was no Google Maps. There was like nothing. So I actually had to ask people like, oh, how do you get to? How do you take the bus to go to Yulong and all these like really、uh, other places where there are no no subway?、And、I think that was that was fun, and I got I got to explore、uh, all these like. Shopping malls across Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is a big place. It, it actually took me four weeks, and I was doing this like five days a week. I had to travel to like various shopping Wait, malls. How many shops did you visit? How, how many people? How many? Back then, back then, I think it was like thirty-eight stores. Thirty-eight stores, yeah. And they don't open early in the morning. Obviously, I mean. Retail opens at around like eleven a.m. and and seriously, no one really shops at eleven a.m. So it's better to kind of show up right before lunch, right after lunch. That's that's a that's a more believable time for someone who's actually looking to buy something to show up at a store. So you talked about how you had a second or third summer. A second summer at Telly Sales, and then another summer at e-commerce. So let's and eBay. Can you talk a bit about eBay and and what happened with e-commerce and how you got it started? 
So I got started with selling things on eBay after uh, a co my college uh, drawmate. So back then at Stanford, uh, I mean, we, we did we lived next door. Um, I remember his name was David Kerr, and he was telling me, "Oh, you can sell things on eBay. You're from Asia, like, can you pick up a few things from Asia, like phones?" And that kind of got me interested. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I, I mean, I do get a lot of these. I, I, I like gadgets. So I, I, back then, I bought a lot of these personal um, digital assistants, PDAs, uh, the Sony Clie. And I remembered uh, there are all these new new versions that would come out. And I, I didn't know what to do with the old version. So decided to. Okay, let's give it a try. Like, try this out on eBay. Take a few pictures, write up a description, and and in early 2000, that I mean, eBay was very effective in selling all kinds of things, secondhand or even broken electronics. I mean, as long as you disclose that they're not working properly, people are still buying them. I guess they're buying them for parts. And um, one thing led to another. I was selling computers. I was like, I, I was returning to Hong Kong during Christmas with an empty suitcase. My parents asked me, why do you bother bringing the suitcase? I mean, you're only staying for like three weeks. You have all the clothes you need in Hong Kong. But I said, oh, I need an empty suitcase because I needed to bring back all kinds of uh, secondhand electronics because I wanted to sell them online. It was really easy. Uh, and from, from there on, uh, I was somehow introduced to some jewelry photos uh, from the jewelry company. And I decided to also post them online uh, on, on eBay and see if I can sell them. And uh, it was not that hard. I mean, I still remember the first piece of jewelry I sold. It was a, it was a star pendant at, uh, that's worth uh, 98 US dollars. And I sold it on eBay. And it turns out that's the first piece of jewelry that was sold. Uh, by a company um, online. I, I still remember like not being able to see who the customer is. Um, I'd never met the customer, never sh showed the customer a piece of jewelry. Uh, the piece of jewelry never did not even come to come to me because I actually asked my Hong Kong colleagues to actually send it directly from Hong Kong to this uh, American address. And back then we didn't have a term for it, but now we do. It's called drop shipping. So we did drop shipping right, right off the bat. And I received payment through Billpoint. I mean, it was an old form of PayPal. Or it was a, it was a payment method uh, used by eBay. Subsequently, it got discontinued and it switched to PayPal. So it was really. Uh, mind-blowing for a lot of our, my, my jewelry staff because jewelry should be sold um, by hand. Uh, you should be interacting with customers. They need to try it on before they buy anything. And normally they would actually pay and get the piece of jewelry right away because it's such a, uh, it, it's a, it's such a valuable piece of product you may not necessarily trust anyone sending it online. 
Uh, but all that was done uh, on eBay in year 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, we're, we're looking into like various models to sell more and it worked really well up until 2003 when I think eBay changed some of the rules. And I think that's also when Amazon started to pick up. Um, but anyways, uh, it was it was a very good experience in, in getting myself fam uh, familiar with the online space, which kind of started off my career in online retailing uh, after I graduated from college in 2004. So that was the, the secret customer sort of in shop internship and that internships um, and then there was the eBay, um, sort of the early years of eBay in the 19, late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, so I know you later spent, you know, time about a decade um, building e-commerce and, and reaching um, 700 cities around the world with product from Hong Kong. Can you talk a bit about that experience? What, what was that like? Um. I think selling on eBay in America um, was a good start. Um, and I, I, I would even say that being in Silicon Valley, being exposed to all these like new platforms, that was great. Returning to Hong Kong uh, to get all of this started, uh, I think it was, it was not as easy as may sound even though the internet is supposed to connect the world. But if if the Silicon Valley is the capital of the internet world, Hong Kong back then was definitely a fishing village. I mean, people didn't believe in it uh, online. People didn't want to believe in online, wasn't even interested. And there was very little people, uh, very few people who, who are familiar with this way of selling. So the first five, years or so we were exporting a lot from hong kong so there were we, we had very few local customers uh i was selling on ebay i was selling on uh even etsy and uh started selling on amazon maybe in 2009 um back then e-commerce was in Hong Kong was not really e-commerce. It was just like trying to figure out how, uh, where where the various channels are around the world and try to uh, export, which was very difficult because local people in Hong Kong I hired to help me run the business and build a business have very little personal experience in buying online. And uh, that kind of changed when Facebook kind of, uh, became popular in Hong Kong. And also Taobao became, started to become popular in Hong Kong. Uh, the, I mean, local, the local population had a bit more reference points, a few more reference points in terms of selling online. Um, so there are like quite a few downsides in, in, in moving back to Asia to, to, to do online e-commerce as such a uh, early uh, sta stage. But then that kind of opened up another opportunity because there are so few talents in, in Hong Kong. Um, and I, I, I still remember back then I really needed people to help me with like social media, e-marketing, 
one thing led to another. I mean, I asked a, a, a Stanford um, uh, alum alum to introduce me to some of their friends in Hong Kong, and uh, the and I remember uh, this, this a new friend that I I, I met called Wai Lun. He was able to help me build uh, Facebook games, and that kind of helped set the stage in terms of like how to get my company on social media. So I remember I told him, "Oh, we only have like seven hundred seven hundred friends on our Facebook fan page. Can we use like can we build games to really ramp this up?" And he helped me build this game. I mean, I forgot what that game was. But in a short span of six months, we ramped up seventy thousand uh, fans on our Facebook page. That was in early mid, early to mid two thousand nine. Uh, we were definitely right at the cusp of Facebook being a mainstream social media, and that was really, really, really fun um, during during all of that. And that kind of exposed me to the entrepreneurship world, because turns out he he got all this experience from another company that I was working on、uh, working with overseas, but then、um, very few people actually knew what he was doing. So he didn't have a choice in terms of joining a large company. He had to kind of do his own thing. So entrepreneurship was I was introduced to entrepreneurship in such a way. And one thing led to another,、uh, and with my family support, my father in particular,、uh, we invested in the co-work space, and we also decided to actually build our own co-work space, and that's how Cocoon came about、uh, in 2012. So yeah, I mean, e-commerce in Hong Kong back then didn't work out,、uh, didn't pan out the way I wanted, but that opened up new doors in terms of. Uh, reaching out to new, new industries and, and meeting new people, and Cocoon came about, and subsequently, we went into investments in startup investments. So I, I definitely want to circle back to talk about Cocoon and Cocoon Ignite Ventures. But can I go back a little bit? So, in terms of, I want to talk a bit about traffic. So when you went to the the thirty eight shops in your internships to like, you know. Meet the the frontline sales team, and then later、um, you were building Facebook games, you know, to to basically a hundred x traffic to to more than seventy thousand followers. This was early in you know mid two thousands. Like, can you talk a bit about your 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 ideas or thoughts around traffic from physical brick to brick and mortar to social media? Like, what are the pain points? For for shops, like you know, there, there's this saying about location, location, location. Like, what's happening there? I, I think location for retail retailer. I mean, it's self-evident. It's very important because that's where your point of sales is. That's where you、uh, transact, and being convenient, I think, is very important. Um, but I would also say that if you take a step back and look at it more generically, retailers have always 
have always been the last mile in terms of delivering goods to end users. Uh, retailers are just resellers for, for the majority of retailers. So they buy something at a wholesale price and they sell it locally at a retail price. They add their respective costs in transportation, in rent, in um, salaries, plus a profit, then they sell. And if you look at it from this way, uh, it, going online for a retailer makes a lot of sense because traffic is actually a lot cheaper. So you don't need to actually have the rent. Uh, and you are getting traffic to your, I mean, quote unquote shop, your e-shop 24 seven. So you're not paying, you're, you're not going to be paying rent while your shop is closed. Um, oh, actually what I mean is like for regular physical shops, you still need to pay rent while your shop is closed. But for e-shop, you, you, you are open 24 seven. But I think the key difference is that at a shop, when someone actually gets into a sh in, into your shop, they're already signaling uh, uh, that they're interested in your products and they need it. Some they don't want to buy something. And normally, your frontline staff are there to help them hold. I mean, help them choose something that they want. But for an e-shop, everything's self-service. Now that is very very problematic to a lot of retailers because all that data re in regard to that product uh, needs to be created in order for you to populate an e-shop. Normally, if it's in a physical shop, your frontline staff does all that grunt work. He or she will be explaining, say, the piece of jewelry, oh, it's how many pieces of diamond, uh, how, how heavy are the diamonds, where the diamonds are from, um, gold content, et cetera, et cetera. You don't have that uh, pre, uh, uh, I, I guess, pre uh, ready. So for eShop, you actually need to add all of that in. But even with that, people are not just going to buy a piece of jewelry because you have all that data. Uh, we're still missing the part where the frontline um, sales associate may ask, like, who are you buying it for? Is this an anniversary gift? Is this a birthday gift? Is this for your daughter? Is this for your wife? Is this for your girlfriend? Is this for yourself? I mean, there are still a lot of these very important uh, product service specific questions that need to be answered. And having all this online and asking customers to, to just do all of the self-service is very difficult. We're not buying groceries. As, an online, as a customer, I'm not buying groceries. I actually want to talk to someone. And if it's something of great value, I actually think that part of the, the value is to talk to someone. I think a lot of uh, retailers uh, especially the e-shops fall short when they, in, I mean, when when they just enter all the data and expect customers to kind of buy on their own. 
And there's also other consequences to, to all of this because it's such a self-service, uh, it looks very much like a self-service model. A lot of frontline staff in the shops actually see their, their company websites as their enemy because they're taking business away. If customers go online and can buy things like $10,000 worth of jewelry online without a human being, it's essentially saying that human beings are redundant or so, uh, frontline staff are redundant. So there's a lot of um, a lot of these problems in frontline staff do see that this is a, uh, um, I guess, an enemy uh, in terms of taking this business away from them. They're definitely going to help your online store. At the same time, uh, it only a very small proportion of customers are willing to buy luxury products on uh, a self-service model. And I think there, these are the these are the problems with thinking about um, online versus offline retailing. And that's where I, I think it's very important to actually look at it from from uh, from a customer's perspective. Is it possible to actually go online? Uh, I can do my own research, but when I need someone, can I just like talk to someone? But at my own time, I mean, I, I shop at 11, 8 p.m. I want to talk to someone in the middle of the night. Okay, maybe through chat. That's actually something that makes a lot more sense than to visit a store and not uh, not knowing what I'm going to buy and not sure if I want to buy from this retailer. That would be a waste of my lunchtime if I were to shop during weekdays. Wow. So I think along these lines of online online retailing, we're evolving to a stage where uh, we actually need to look at retail in a way where, from a customer's perspective, we need to merge the two. We need to allow our frontline staff to have access to these online traffic, such that these hesitant customers get to have their questions answered, uh, get the service that they deserve, and be able to purchase online and pick up offline or make that request online and just go offline and uh, make pick up the goods and also make the purchase. It's really about, well, I guess for retailers, uh, location, location, location. I mean, physical location is important, but now it's also online. Online location need to be readily available and more specifically let frontline staff be readily available online so that they can actually do what they're best at. Uh, talk to customers, engage customers, chat with them. And I think that's where retail is heading. I mean, bottom line, I don't think I would want to, I mean, if I were to compare this to, to, to restaurants, I don't think I would want to uh, eat at a three-star mission restaurant uh, with uh, with like a fast food self-service arrangement. So service is actually part of the experience. I do not, I would not want to cut that out. Uh, just like buying a piece of jewelry online. I mean, it's great, but then I still want human beings to help me choose my gifts. If there are any problems, I know who I can talk to. Um, and I think that's part of the service of uh, in, in, in terms of luxury retail. So 
this is all very interesting. Let me let me see if I could like summarize it a little bit in terms of. So you started uh, in the two thousands with building online um, business based out of Hong Kong, um, and essentially exporting or shipping to customers around the world because local Hong Kong customers in the 2000s were really just not shopping online. They were all shopping in shops. Um, so you were living in a city where everybody was shopping offline, but you were running a business where you were selling everything online. And then I guess later, maybe in uh, 2000, when, when did it start? When do you think it started to shift uh, where more people out here were, were buying online and and beginning to transition to this whole hybrid online and offline model. Actually, I think it started in around 2012 or so when there's Taobao, but the real big shift is actually COVID, 2020, when everyone just had to go online. And can you talk a bit about this shift from um, online to offline in terms of traffic and customer experience. Can you maybe share like an experience where a customer has the ideal experience of being able to browse online, connect with a human being, and then experience and shop, buy online or buy offline? I mean, I, I have a personal experience in terms of buying a washing machine uh, online. I mean, actually I had to replace one. And I remember going to Price Right. Well, Price Right or was it Panashop? One of them. I think it was Panashop. And they had like two to three different models. And actually, I mean, I was looking at the, the details, couldn't figure out like the key differences. There's a price difference. Um, between $4,000, and $6,000. But I couldn't tell the key differences. And I clicked on the chat, uh, the chat button that was on, on the website. And I asked, like, what's the difference? In just plain Cantonese. Like, I don't know how, I mean, I see the prices, but I don't understand the differences. And it was very useful that there was uh, there was a, I believe it was like a Panashop frontline staff who replied to me right away I mean, within like 10 minutes and told me, oh, these are the key differences, uh, the volume, uh, how much, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a washer dryer thing. So you can wash seven kilos of, of clothes, but you can only dry five kilos of clothes versus this other one can wash six kilos of clothes, but also, and dry six kilos of of clothes. Um, that was very helpful. At least I know there, there are these like key differences. And I remember as soon as the, uh, the frontline staff like explained to me, I decided, okay, I'm going to buy a mid range one. And, and, um, I made a payment and I immediately sent, sent, uh, through, through WhatsApp a screenshot of my payment because Nick's message was, can you help me follow up? Because a lot of the times when I buy things online, 
I just don't know when they're going to be delivering. But when I'm able to actually talk to someone, have have a record of my payment, I've just send it to a human being. I feel uh, safer that someone's actually taking care of this. And subsequently, I I uh, I mean, a few days later. The frontline staff contacted me again and asked me if I needed to have my old washing machine um, removed. And I asked, so how much would it cost? And uh, the frontline staff told me, oh, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, we'll have someone come over and pick it up. I was like, sure. I mean, you can have someone come over and pick it up. But like, I actually need to coordinate my time with um, my family. and. Turns out the, the company that's going to be collecting is not from uh, Panasonic. It was another recycling company. And we got connected over WhatsApp and I was able to coordinate a time. It was very convenient to be able to do all of this asynchronously because I need to collect information. I need to talk to different people. Then I need to have a place to record that, oh, okay. This, this is this is the right time, this is the, this is the address. And um, I remember I was able to get them to take away my old washing machine three hours before they delivered the new washing machine. So that was helpful because I can get things done in one go and not like just, just sit at home and or ask my family members to sit at home and wait for someone to come by and pick up the machine and also deliver. So the new machine got delivered. Um, well, it was very interesting. It got delivered and it kept in the box. And I remember messaging uh, Shop again. And I was like, why do you just deliver the box? I mean, have someone install it. I mean, I can't use the machine. I, it was at uh, the middle of the night and they didn't respond right away. And I decided, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. Uh, I unpacked the thing and I installed it wasn't too difficult. It was like, it was okay. But then as soon as I turned on the machine, uh, it started rumbling. I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. So I thought the machine was faulty. So the following day I told them, oh, I mean, I recorded a video. Look at this. This thing is not working. Send someone to come fix this or take this away and give me a new one. So immediately the frontline staff brought in a technician into the chat and the technician actually explained, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm supposed to come by earlier the, I mean, the following day to help you install this. I mean, you didn't have to do it on your own. I was like, oh, you should have told me earlier. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize. I mean, and also I know exactly what's wrong. I mean, I looked at the video, you, you forgot to take out like these four bolts, these safety bolts that we have to keep the drum and the specific particular um, uh, way. Um, Anyways, I'm coming by your apartment uh, and I'm going to help you fix all of that. He came by, fixed it, took a video of it, works. Yeah, and it's just like very convenient. If you think about it, uh, there's a lot of details in just buying and replacing a washing machine. And it could have taken easily taken me two weeks if this is done over the phone. Um, and, and a lot of wait, waiting time, but now it's just a lot easier when you're able to uh, bring people into chat, uh, these groups, form these groups impromptu, and they disassemble right away. I mean, after I'm done, I 
and delete the group. I, I, I don't have to look at it anymore. So yeah, I think I think that's the direction. I mean, the retail, online retail sounds really good, but at the end of the day, when you really need to deliver something, I mean, I can online retail a washing machine uh, installation. You still need someone to do it. And not everything can be DIY. So I think that, that was a, a pretty good experience in, in the sense that uh, because of better communication, things move well, things actually uh, work a lot smooth smoothly. Wait, so basically the whole washing machine shopping install experience was happening over chat. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean it was it was complemented uh, with chat after payment. So there's a lot of stuff going on after just paying for a washing machine. Someone's got to deliver it. Someone's got to install it. And to make sure that works, you are not going to buy a washing machine and you're not going to install it like an app. So you've got to have people work on this. So I know that Panashop um, is one of um, your customers at Empower. Um, can you give us a, a 30 seconds of what is Empower? So Empower is about improving the livelihoods of frontline staff by giving them the best technology and helping them find customers or connect to customers every day. Um, it's conversational commerce, but with tools that are specifically designed for frontline staff to interact better with uh, the customers. So there are ways for you to bring, bring hesitant online customers to frontline staff directly, install um, WhatsApp buttons on websites, click on them and customers get to click on them and they get redirected to frontline staff. Uh, and there's also, we have tools where we're able to um, bring various customers uh, and departments of, of a brand to talk together. So the chat actually remains with the brand. It's not going to be just uh, random groups. And um, we're able to analyze that data to help uh, brands and companies come up with better strategies in engaging their customers. Can we go deeper into that? Like, so I, I go shopping and I get these um, frontline salespeople who will be like, hey, you know, if you want to share your WhatsApp with me. So I have a private WhatsApp or WeChat message channel with them. How is Empower different? It's different in the sense that, well, when consumers and users I connect with that individual frontline staff, they're actually connecting with the company branded WhatsApp. So there's there's one point, single point of truth, single point of, uh, single touch point where the conversations are, are recorded or stored with the brand and not with that individual frontline staff. He or she can log into a system. Obviously you can review all the 
old conversations that uh, the frontline staff have 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 worked on. Uh, at the same time, the company gets to actually keep that conversation data. That's actually something uh, we believe a lot of brands are currently missing. The frontline staff been doing a lot of this conversational commerce, but all that information, that data is uh, distributed among individual uh, phones. This conversational data, we, we, we think is actually very important for companies to not just own, but to also analyze to figure out how to better serve customers. And another thing about this is it's easy for the end users to reach out to the brand. There's only one number, not like individual sales number that they they have to um, they have to uh, store. And I mean, people also leave the company, so we're, we're not you're not sure whether you're contacting the uh, the company if you're contacting that person. So. Um, that's how that's how it works. I like how I like to connect this back to how you said, you know, when brands were building dot coms, they actually had to completely rebuild their content strategy that was previously delivered by human beings online. So whether it's product details, product video, um, uh, three sixty, you know, images. So what you're saying here is there's a lot of content being built inside messaging. And with a product like Empower, um, brands can use this layer um, to again aggregate and optimize their content um, and communication strategy. I, I want to also loop back um, to what we started this conversation earlier with. Um, you started as a secret customer talking to salespeople in shops. And now you're building a enterprise SaaS platform for frontline salespeople and shops. Why? Like, why? Why is this important to you? And you know, you talked about livelihoods. Tell us more about that. I think this is important to me because, uh, based on all the technology investments that we've done. Uh, through Cocoon Adventures over the past like five to six, six years, I can see how the way we invest in uh, things that we invest will impact the kind of future that we will be living in. And as much as I like a lot of this conveniences with all these self-service platforms with Amazon, with Taobao, I see that a lot of livelihoods are being destroyed along the way. Uh, and I think not everything is supposed to be sold online in a self-service manner. So it's important that we empower uh, product and service experts to connect with online customers and really be able to deliver their value. I guess their knowledge, their experience, their expertise uh, using technology. And I think 
from that from from that perspective we'll be building a world where we're empowering people with uh, insight and knowledge to make a better living and i think that's the kind of technology that we will want to invest in and also to help promote so in a future world people who know how to use this technology and who who are experts in using this technology to share their respective industry insight uh, experiences um, and know-how will will benefit more than just buying and selling on the platform. We're not trying to eliminate every human being like what Amazon and Taobao is trying to do. We are actually empowering human beings who have uh, important things to share to connect with other human beings. I think there there's a lot of value in that. Going back to investing, I mean, we all, I mean, to a great degree, I think most people do not want to see a world that's ruled by robots. But my question is, what are we doing about it? Because we're a way too, most people are just way too lazy, waiting for someone else to do something, waiting for someone else to deliver the food, waiting for someone else to deliver the Amazon or Taobao uh, purchases. What are they actually doing to actually prevent our world in turning into a robot um, AI controlled world? And I think through Empower, that's what I, I, I want. I hopefully that's also what my team wants is to actually build the world that we want to see is, is that technology enabling product and service experts to really uh, deliver value to their respective communities, online or offline, connect people. Um, I think that's where Empower is heading towards. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to hear more from entrepreneurs and investors on why they got started, how they got through the hard parts, and what they're doing next. See you soon.